This is the Monday, July 2nd, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine strikes gold in Nevada's Comstock load, a world record vein so immensely valuable that it altered the course of the United States Civil War. Here with his pickaxe to guide us on this journey is Gregory Crouch, who brings us the Bonanza King. John Mackey and the battle over the greatest riches in the American West. It's the history-making, rags-to-riches story of an Irish immigrant who made his fortune, won the love and admiration of his adopted country, and then fell from the national memory, in part because nobody had a bad word to say about him. Well, except maybe that crank who took a shot at him. But it wasn't personal. And after all, what famous figure didn't suffer an assassination attempt in the 19th century, much less the wild, gunslinging gold rush days? Yes, unlike the Rockefellers and Carnegies, and those fellows hiring Pinkerton goons to bust up strikes, John Mackey didn't grow infamous and have to leave a huge foundation dedicated to rehabbing his legacy and buying the occasional Senate seat or governorship for all those kids they have down the generations. John Mackey left none of those dramatic stories of worker abuse or government swindling that he needed to paper over with greenbacks. John Mackey treated his employees on the square and gave away his fortune, most of it anonymously, which doesn't help your legacy either. Gregory Crouch's previous books include the World War II flying adventure China's Wings and the Alpine memoir Enduring Patagonia. He studied history at the United States Military Academy at West Point and completed U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger schools and led two platoons of infantry. You've seen his work in National Geographic, The Atlantic, Outside, Islands, American History, Ascent, Rock and Ice, Climbing, and many other publications where fine writing is found. Visit him at gregcrouch.com, facebook.com slash gregorycrouchauthor, at Gregory Crouch on Twitter, or Gregory.Crouch on Instagram. And I have to say for his Instagram page, he's really an active author, and it's great to see how much pride and passion he takes in his book. Okay, now that we've reached the Carson River, let's meet Greg Crouch and go panning for gold with The Bonanza King. I'm joined via Skype by Gregory Crouch, author of The Bonanza King, John Mackey and the Battle Over the Greatest Riches in the American West. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. 
Oh, it's my pleasure, Dean. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for writing this book on behalf of John Mackey, if I could make that leap into the grave and hear him, even though I know he was a humble guy, even though I know he was modest, didn't like to talk about himself and brag about his good deeds. This is really a book where anybody would be proud to have it written about them, and he really deserved it. He He's really a figure where you're reading his story, and, and I'm saying, oh, come on. You know, whether I'm, <laughs> you know, if you had a montage of me, like in a movie, I'd be on the subway. Oh, come on. I'd be on the, you know, walking <laughs> home from, or walking the dog, or whatever it is. Oh, come on. Sitting in bed at night reading the book. Oh, come on. Because John Mackey did so many things that just defy belief. Kind, righteous things, and also noble personal things. Struggle like overcoming a stutter. Plus, he just worked so hard to build his mining empire, to literally put the shovel in the ground. This is not just a venture capitalist, just a guy spectating. I mean, he's rolling up the sleeves and getting dirty, and he loves that work. He's a person that loves working. Sometimes you you look at a, a young boy, for example, I'm thinking of John Mackey and playing with those Tonka trucks and they just want to keep digging it and putting it in the back and you come right, you carry it around, you turn those little things with all those great toys back in the day. And that's the kind of guy he is. That's something he loves doing. And it's nice to see him get rewarded for it. So how did you first come across John Mackey metaphorically playing with his Tonka truck right. and decide that you were going to take this giant of industry and tell his story? Well, it didn't start with John Mackey. When I finished my last book, I wanted to do a local story. Now, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so I wanted I was researching San Francisco history, trying to find a un or undertold or improperly told story focused on San Francisco that I could write about. And I kept running into these connections to the old Comstock load from the early days of the city. And, you know, my my mom had taken me up to Virginia City when I was a little boy, and I had really fond memories of that. And um, and so as I kept hitting those connections, I started looking into the connection between Comstock Load, Virginia City and San Francisco and and really fell in love with that story. And, and then I started reading about the Comstock Load, read all the books I could get my hands on about it. I didn't find them totally satisfying. I thought there was room for another book about it that would focus more not on the, like the whiskey and gun smoke and the hookers with the heart of gold, but rather on like the working man's history of the Old West, because I think that's much more the real story. That's why people came out here. They came out here to work hard. And that story, once I hit on that, pretty quickly leads to John Mackey. You know, he was the seminal figure in the history of the Comstock load. He walked over there a few weeks after it was discovered and, and stayed there for the rest of the Comstock heydays and worked his way up from nothing, from starting as a $4 a day miner in somebody else's mine, gradually accumulating mining ground feet in the mines and making better and better investments. And then, you know, 15 years later, he kind of went all in again on the Con Virginia mine, the Consolidated Virginia mine. And that mine just happened to contain the big bonanza, the biggest strike of them all. And it, you know, made him one of the richest people in the world. And I think one of the most undertold and underappreciated rags to riches stories in American history, he had risen from nothing for being a destitute Irish immigrant in the Five Points neighborhood of New York to being one of the richest people in the world. He is such a rags-to-riches story, one of those stories that the cliche is only in America, and he feels that way when he comes 
in part because this is a virgin territory that he goes to. And yet he starts with such modest goals. He doesn't sit there dreaming of draping himself in jewels. He doesn't expect to go walk before kings, literal kings, not just the Bonanza king. But he, he doesn't expect to ever be called a king or be on their level. But yet he ends up there. He ends up in the court of St. James. He ends up at the, the czar's coronation. So this is something where it's amazing all the more because the guy doesn't start out saying, I'm going to be on the top one day and I'm going to crush my enemies. In fact, he says early in his life that he'd be happy if he could just get $25,000. And you mentioned that a couple of times in the book and that people would later rib him about that, about setting that limit when here he is <laughs> swimming in it. So just how much money, to put it in 2018 terms, did John Mackey end up accumulating? And what did he say when people pointed out, hey, I thought you were going to stop at twenty five grand? Well, yeah, it was his mining partner from California Gold Rush days who stayed his friend through their whole lives who would tease him about that. Mackey had once, you know, thrown down his tools in frustration and said, you know, if I could ever make 25 grand, I'd stop working. Anyway, that partner teased him and reminded him of it. And, you know, Maggie flushed red and, and he had a stutter. So he flushed red, embarrassed and stammered out, well, I ch changed my mind <laughs> and you know, Mackie probably raised about $25 million from the Comstock load in 1875, 1880 money. And if you take that as an equivalent slice of GDP, you know, make a ratio of GDP then to GDP now and fill in the blank for what it would be now, I think Mackie would have walked away with about 35 to $50 billion. The Comstock load was the Silicon Valley of the age. And that put Mackie in about fifth place amongst Americans, among the richest Americans. And that, wow. interestingly enough, that ratio puts him exactly in fifth place today. And no income tax back then, federal income tax. I, I don't doubt the state would have had it either. So it's even more when you think about it that they, way. They did have taxes, so he didn't get away clean with that much money, but it was yeah. a staggering sum of money. Yeah, no matter how you cut don't it. Don't forget that gold and silver were monetized in the 1870s. They were literally digging that up in cash. No wonder it drove people mad when you imagine it. You hear a story like that of people just sticking a shovel in the ground and you have to look out at the world and it, it can drive you mad. It can literally give you that gold fever. Oh, yeah. That makes them all the more amazing that the guy is able to resist that avarice and resist that greed and keep being a businessman, keep his friends. But just the fact that he still has an old friend from his early mining days. Look at how many of these guys just maybe ended up shooting each other or swindling each other or stealing their claim or not to mention dying on the job. The fact that he was able to maintain it, those are all really positive things in his life. He's an inspirational story in that he appreciates those things because he's seen it go bust. He's lived the bad times, so he's able to deal with the good times. Yeah. Yeah, if Mackey had a flaw, I think it was he had a pretty he had an Irish temper, right? He he could lose his temper and he was not afraid to get into a fist fight, even as an old man. If somebody like there's a famous anecdote of somebody insulting his wife when they were about 65 and he he attacked him. <laughs> and that was in the in the in a bank in San Francisco, right? So, you know, <laughs> he he was not afraid to defend what he thought was his, and he wouldn't stand for an insult to his good name under any circumstances if he thought it was unjust. That said, he was a good guy. That that's basically what sets him apart from the other robber barons of the era is he never lost his good name. You know, those other guys 
were reviled in the context of their own time, and rightly so. You know, Carnegie, Stanford, Huntington, Rockefeller, those guys were reviled, and rightly so. And and Maggie wasn't that way. He was really held up as an example of noble American manhood, you know, throughout the land. He, he had earned his money from mining, which in the context of those times was seen as clean wealth, right? You didn't make profit from somebody else in a business transaction where theoretically somebody won and somebody lost. You know, Mackey made his money and, you know, he stormed the heights of nature and, and dug it out for himself kind of thing is how they would have said it in those times. The discovery of gold occurs just a tick before Mexico cedes California and the rest of the Southwest to the United States in 1848, but word doesn't get out due to the limitations of communications, and that's why we have the San Francisco 49ers, or you do, and not the 48ers, because the word gets back and people don't believe it, that it's, it couldn't be, there's a lot of rumor and all the all these kinds of things that are fake news, as we would say today, about the gold rush, and people doubt it and don't believe the fortune. But then people start going who have nothing to lose or very little to lose, including John Mackey. Since it's a new territory, there's also no law, which makes John Mackey's character even more important. So describe how the young John Mackey throws himself into that flood of men heading westward, and then we'll talk about the role he later plays in accelerating that communications technology. Yeah, Mackey, um, you know, he didn't go with the first flush of men who went to California in 1849. He, he was... Um, he wasn't a naturally impulsive man. He, he stayed in New York for the next two and a half years, finishing his apprenticeship in a shipyard, learning carpentry skills. Uh, now, those skills would prove to be an immense benefit in a mining camp. But I suspect he'd given his word to his employer that he would finish his apprenticeship. And Mackey was definitely that, a man of his word. So he finished his apprenticeship. And then in the last half of 1851, he went to California. And by that time, you know, California wasn't a mystery. Stories about California had been filling New York newspapers ever since the gold discovery news broke, you know. So Mackey was not under any illusions about easy made wealth he'd find in California by the end of 1851. He knew he was going out there to do what he did best, which was work really hard. And so, you know, he made the trip. He sailed to Central America, across Central America, and then up to San Francisco, and then walked to the mining camps and, and did what he did best. He pushed up his sleeves and went to work. You write in the Bonanza King that San Francisco was the most male place on earth thanks to the gold rush. You had a footnote that blew me away, and that footnote was that it didn't reach parity between the sexes until 1950. That's what a big difference that there was with all these men pouring out there. It's a big part of the book is John Mackey's relationship with his unique singular wife and also his stepdaughter. So how did those relationships endure these long separations required by his life? He's in an all-male world of mining. This can turn a man gruff. This can make you, uh, just like the poverty could have, can make you really rough around the edges. And as I mentioned to you before, I feel like he's a guy who spent half of his life crusted in dirt with muddy boots and, and you yeah. know, smoke all around him. And, and probably you wouldn't want to get within 20 feet of him on some days until he took a bath. So how does this impact his life because the relationship with those two women is an inspiring part of the Bonanza King. Yeah, you know, Louise Mackey, Mackey's wife, she really fascinated me. And I got pretty fascinated by their relationship 
in general. She had grown up in a mining camp. Um, she was brought to California when she was like nine years old in 1855, spent the rest of her growing up in that mining camp when there were barely any children in California, let alone female children. She married a promising doctor who was not John Mackey a few days after her 16th birthday. They had a, two kids, two daughters, and went to Virginia City during the boom times. M Mackey had been there probably for about three years already at that point. You know, being a doctor was not the same prestigious profession that it is today. You could call yourself a doctor and you were one, right? You didn't need to be approved by yeah. anybody. <laughs> Louise's husband, Dr. Bryant, Edmund Gardner Bryant, he had been trained at Columbia, but he also had a weakness for drink, and he got himself addicted to one of the few effective medicines in the doctor's 19th century doctor's bag, which was opium. So he, he was pretty abusive, I think, to Louise and their children. Their youngest daughter, died of the septic sore throat is how it was described, possibly a bad strep infection or something like that, swelled her throat shut and she suffocated to death. And that kind of threw Louise over the edge. They were too poor by that point because Dr. Bryant had lost most of their money in unwise mining speculations to even afford a headstone for the little girl's grave. So he was drinking too much, probably or possibly abusing her. And he disappeared to another mining camp, kind of abandoning her. And she had to work as a seamstress, which was the lowest paid female occupation to make ends meet for her and her surviving daughter. When her husband comes back, Dr. Bryant comes back, he's badly dissipated at that point. While Louise was out sewing, their daughter fell down the stairs and broke her hip really badly, which is likely him kicking her in her drunken rage. So the poor girl is crippled, and Dr. Bryant leaves in disgrace. He goes to San Francisco, and then he just disappears into another mining camp. And several years go by where Louise doesn't hear from him at all, and then she hears that he's dying of tetanus. So she goes over the Sierras to the camp and like nurses him through dying of tetanus, which is awful. I mean, just an awful disease. Anyway, now she's a widow in 1866 and on the Comstock load and, you know, having to support her daughter as a seamstress. And about a year and a half later or a year later, Mackie meets her and begins courting her. And, you know, Mackie was not a polished man. She was pretty well educated thanks to her mother who spoke, who was European and spoke French and, it, and it, Spanish and English, all those languages Louise could speak, even though she was this, you know, seamstress in a mining camp. And Mackie fell in love with her and proposed, but she wasn't so certain about marrying Mackie, although he'd made a modest raise at that point and was, you know, a rich man on his way up. He never could like break himself of the habit of using uncouth phrases like me and fair and stuff like that. He spoke like a miner. And so she worried about making an unsuitable match. But eventually she relented and decided that she might well go further and fair were go farther and fair worse. And so she married him and she hated the Comstock. She had these terrible relationships to the Comstock load. And so she lobbied and Mackie agreed that she would go live in San Francisco. And it was about a took about a day to commute to San Francisco. So from the Comstock load. So that worked for them for a while. And then when Mackie's next 
or biggest mining venture came in, the big bonanza. That took him from being a modestly successful miner to being one of the richest men in the world. But it was this immense engineering challenge. He was going to have to be on the Comstock load for almost the entire time supervising the extraction of this colossal ore body. And it was so valuable that he just didn't want to take his eyes off of it. Hmm. So they just, they'd had two sons by this time, and they decided that she would take the sons to live in Paris while Mackie would spend like five years working on getting this ore body out of the ground, which is how long it took. He would leave like once a year. And by the middle 1870s, you could travel from Nevada to New York in only eight days on the Transcontinental Railroad. Wow. And then you could get to Europe in another fortnight on a steamship. So it only took about three weeks to get from Nevada to Paris, where Mackie had bought one of the mansions that fronts the Arc de Triomphe for his wife, Nine Rue de Tilsit. It's currently the Belgian embassy. It's literally like the best address in Paris. And so he would go visit for a couple months a year, and then he would go back to the Comstock and stay out there for like the other eight or nine months of the year. And there's a big period in there, maybe two or three years, where I don't think he went to Paris at all. And she was she was sort of supervising the upbringing of their kids. And then when it was over, when the big bonanza was out of the ground, then he did go and spend a, almost three years where it was reversed. He would come back to Nevada for like two or three months a year, but stay in Europe for nine months. And they got to spend all this great time together, you know, seeing the sights of Europe. He became this pretty well-known art collector and music aficionado and stuff like that. And it looks to me like they had a pretty good marriage, although organized half a world apart from each other. It sounds like she had a civilizing effect on her husband, which is something that people often talk about, all these phrases like behind every great man, there's a great woman, and the woman makes the man. And these are all things that go all the way back to the Old Testament, where you talk about what makes a good fit. And here he is, he grows up with literally nothing in five points. Talk about needing to fight. Talk about being a fighter. I mean, that doesn't come out of nowhere. You're not going to live in five points. You're not going to survive long if you're not able to use your fists and not to mention the doubling of the era that he's coming uh, he's just before the famine right he comes over yeah that's right um you're right about that and and you know he his father died when he was 11 and he had to go to work to support his mother and sister so he sold newspapers on the streets of new york one of the irish newsboys that were really one of the ubiquitous sites in new york in the 19th century and yeah, if you had a you had to fight to hold a good street corner if you wanted to sell newspapers on it, right? You got that street corner by being the kid that couldn't get knocked off of it. And by the way, the way that they worked the newsboys back then before the big strike of the newsboys, they had a few big strikes later in the Gilded Age, later in the 19th century really. But Mackey would have to buy the papers, you know, as a young boy, and this is also the way that they ran McSorley's old alehouse. Listeners may remember my interview with Rafe Bartholomew, whose dad is a longtime bartender there, and so is he, and opened by John McSorley back in the 1850s, and that's still how it works today. You, Those bartenders you see in McSorley's, the oldest bar in New York City, they buy their beer at the beginning of their shift, and then they sell it. So the house doesn't lose any money. If somebody runs out on a check, it's you know you as the, as the waiter or the bartender that eats that money. And that's what they would do to these young boys. They'd give them the papers and you had to hawk them. So if you think it was annoying working out, walking on the streets in New York and every corner hearing a little John Mackey scream, paper here, get your paper, nag you, they did that for a reason because 
If they only sold 10 papers and they'd guessed and bought 50 and nobody cared about the news, well, they had to eat that. That's a hard job right there. And hard for a kid with a stutter, I imagine, to be trying to shout to people the headlines of the day. And yet that's the only work that he could get and he had to take it. And so that's what he's working for. He's just always a guy who try to work through adverse times. And as long as they're able to work, they're going to do it and they'll get through it by doing that. That image of him as a little boy selling papers, it stuck with me through the Bonanza King because he never seems to forget that he's that boy, and yet he doesn't he doesn't look back on him with resentment. He's a humble guy. In fact, he doesn't even like this name, this nickname, the Bonanza King. And as I read the book and I read your notes on it, I realized you really like this guy. You obviously have affection for him. How did you feel about choosing that title for the book, knowing that Mackie probably would look at it and be a little bit embarrassed and maybe frown a little bit? I don't think he'd take a swing at you, but he probably would be uh, say, God, first of all, you have to write a book about me when I, you know, I prefer to keep to myself and tell everyone about me. But now you give it the name that that I, I didn't really think that I, I thought it shortchanged me. So how did you feel about that? How did the name The Bonanza King come about? And did you have any reservations? Well, yes. I, uh, yeah, that's pretty a good pickup of you. I did have some reservations and Mackie certainly hated the nickname. He would say it doesn't make anything of me but a millionaire with a swelled head. However, that's how most everybody out here on the Pacific Coast referred to him, you know. So, Mr. Mackie, I'm sorry, but the Bonanza King it's going to be, you know. You <laughs> earned that title with some good fortune and a phenomenal amount of hard and dangerous work, right? And you know, he had worked his way up to the top from absolute nothing. There was nothing lower in 19th century America than an Irish street urchin. In fact, you said he got that internship or that apprenticeship, rather, that he decided he'd follow through on on the shipyards and because he'd given his word and it meant something to him. Just the fact he got that job was something because they wouldn't hire the Irish. So it's, the fact that he got it tells you a little bit about his ability to go in there and how people felt about him, that he does get that job and then stick through. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, shipbuilding was one of the industries notoriously closed to Irishmen. I, I would suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I would imagine that Mackey had impressed some foreman at the shipyard with hard work somewhere else in the city or like a job well done elsewhere in the city because you know the newsboys they would they would sell newspapers in the mornings and the evenings and through the rest of the day they would like sweep street crossings or carry packages for tips that sort of thing you know it was a it was a really hard scrabble existence and and i would guess that mackie had caught somebody's attention for you know hard and honorable work elsewhere in the city Speaking of that hard work, dirty, dangerous work, mining is certainly that, and you describe it throughout the Bonanza King to give us a flavor as readers. It was that work that John Mackey loved. He was a guy who loved the work. Not only was he a hard worker, but he took real pride in it. He enjoyed doing it. It's clear. In the book, you mentioned the rats of the lower galleries, and I love that phrase, and those stories were great in the book, and it gives you an inside view of the minds of these men who do something I honestly would never want to do. I never would want to go to a, a job where I could possibly be buried alive. There's not enough sandwiches I could carry that would, that would ease the disaster of like those poor fellows in Chile that they managed to get out a few years yeah. ago. But it would be good to know John Mackey was your guy. He wasn't just going to leave you buried there and not and not care about you, which uh, did and does happen. So who were the rats of the lower galleries, literally and figuratively? 
Yeah, literally the rats of the lower galleries were rats. You know, they inhabited the mines from the early days and they followed the miners down as they went deeper and deeper into the Comstock load. And I think the rats lived pretty well underground. They could live off the candle droppings, the drippings of the tallow candles. And, you know, they would uh, eat scraps and miners awful and stuff that was underground. And the, the miners kind of fell in love with them. They they were much admired by the miners and they would feed them from their lunch boxes and stuff. You know, they looked on the rats with favor. They thought that the rats would tell them if a gallery was unstable and on the on the verge of collapse, the rats would leave it. And there were stories about men following the rats out of galleries, you know, seconds before they collapsed and stuff like that. And so visitors were warned not to harm any of the rats that they might find underground unless they wanted to try their skill at fighting miners. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that how they get attached to yeah. them and just start to feel favor. And it reminded me of a story with Candace Millard that she includes in Hero of the Empire, the making of Winston Churchill. And it was already one of my favorite stories. But when I interviewed her, I said she kind of gave us the director's cut because he goes down there, Churchill, and they say, watch out for the rats. And he just forgets, as you will. You know, he's on the run from a POW camp. He has a price in his head. Right. And they steal the candle. Sure enough, they say, hide your candle under your pillow. And he forgets. And, you know, the rats steal it and eat it. But he makes friends with them. And it reminded me so much here of John Mackey and his men that he starts to look upon them favorably as little pets. And he gets out of the mine and they tell Churchill, oh, come on, that you're making that up. Because he says they're little white mice with pink eyes. And they were all over him. And they say, oh, he's just gilding the lily. And many years later, they went back down into the mine and they find those same rats, well, the descendants of them, down there in the in the mine to prove that he was describing them accurately. That wasn't a, a flight of fancy. And I thought that with these men, here they are, they're down there, they're doing this hard, dirty, literally death-defying work. And they're there with the rats and that's who become their companions. And gosh, if I had to do a job like that, I would want to be doing it for a man like John Mackey, who you might turn around and see right there next to you with a, with a shovel. He's not above letting a rat scurry across his shoes, yeah. right? Or <laughs> come sit next to him at lunch. Yeah. He was just a, a regular yeah, guy. Yeah, a regular guy. I mean, figuratively, the miners called them, they referred to themselves as the rats of the lower galleries too. And it was phenomenally dangerous work. They, they estimate that there were 900 fatalities in the Comstock mines during the 20-year heydays. That's about one fatality per week and wow. you know, one serious injury per day. And literally, the newspapers are just filled with little blurb anecdotes of accidents. And, and it's, it's just unbelievable how dangerous it was. Samuel Clemens, known by the pen name Mark Twain, offers to switch jobs with the young John Mackey. He says, uh, maybe I'll try my hand at mining. Clemens, of course, big figure out there in San Francisco as well. It's great to get him almost in a cameo here with your main character in The Bonanza King. What will admirers of this quintessential American author learn about him through his relationship with The Bonanza King? Yeah, I almost fell over when I realized that those two had been friends. Uh, you know, Mackie and Mackie and Clemens became Sam Clemens, right, became friends on the Comstock when they were both obscure, driven men desperately trying to work their way up from nothing. And and like Mackie, you know, Sam Clemens very much wanted to get rich. For most people who came west, that was the whole point of it. That was a why you came west to get rich. 
And when Sam Clemens first got to the Nevada Territory in 1861, you know, he charged all over the territory trying to attach himself to some of its fabulous mining wealth. He owned feet in a number of mines, and now a foot is a share, right, since each mine was divided up into so many feet. So if you owned feet, you owned shares in the mine. And it seems like he probably did a lot more hard work mining than he allowed in his book, Roughing It, the classic he wrote about his experiences a decade later. I might point out he made pretty judicious use of improved facts in roughing it. But one of his letters to his brother described, you know, working so hard that he raised blisters on his hands. And fortunately for American literary destiny, none of Sam Clemens's minds came in rich or anything close. And so, you know, to save himself from going broke, Clemens went to Virginia City and he took a job on the Territorial Enterprise, the Comstock's leading newspaper. And that's where the famous pseudonym Mark Twain first appeared. He'd obviously found his calling. When you read Clemens' first efforts at journalizing, you can feel his talent right away. It's not polished, but his voice is really strong and really clear and really different. And he was funny. A classic is a letter he wrote to his sister. It said, they pay me $6 a day and I make 50% profit by only doing $3 worth of work. <laughs> can't imagine him running a mine. Yeah. You can't imagine Mackie doing his job. It's so great that they end up being friends, such different guys. Yeah, yeah. They both made it to the top, right? And they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. And Sam Clemens was could be a pretty testy character late in life. And people would often ask Mackie about it. And he would he would say, you know, I'm addicted to the society of literary men. Hmm. You know, he stuck to his old friend. Like I said, he definitely becomes a civilized guy, not to put him down early, maybe refined is a better word, whereas he admires men like that. And he's a thinker, too. When you're able to give us some glimpses inside of John Mackey's thinking in The Bonanza King, it shows us somebody who is concerned with those things, concerned about others, not obsessed with what they might think of him or anything on that score, but a guy that's pretty singular, his inner monologue, he just will realize the right thing to do and he'll just do it. And he knows what it is pretty instinctively. I like that about him a lot. Yeah, he definitely had an instinct for doing the right thing. There's no question about that. And, you know, the other thing is he was not an illiterate miner, right? He knew how to read. And that was a huge advantage to him as a New York news boy that he was literate and he could read the headlines so he could make a quick snap judgment on whether the news was good today or to invest in a larger stack of newspapers or a smaller one. So that probably balanced out his stutter, right? Because quite a number of those New York newsboys could not read. And Mackey really regretted not having a formal education. And through his whole life, you know, when the other men were out in the saloons getting drunk, he would be back in his room or his boarding house you know, reading, working at self-improvement. He keenly felt his lack of education and desperately wanted to improve himself and worked at it and did. It's just like mining in a way, just keep chipping away and keep digging and keep trying to get where he wanted to go. It's the same, it's that work ethic again. It's really an inspiration. I've probably said the word inspiration six or seven times, but you really get it from the Bonanza King. It really is a striking goal for me to take the book out. There I said it, it was on the tip of my tongue. So I'm just going to say it, even though it's a little corny. The book is really one that I enjoyed for that reason. It's 
great to read somebody who just is going to keep working and plugging away, especially somebody who was so big and yet is so small in the history books. Yeah, I think Mackey was one of the most hardworking Americans of all time. You know, in the early days on the load, he did two full shifts of hard labor most days. The first shift to earn the $4 a day he needed to survive and the second shift to earn sweat equity. To, you know, he was paid in feet in the mines for that second shift. And that that is what helped him, you know, get a leg up. And it is a rare dude that can do two full shifts of manual labor per day. You're enjoying my chat with Gregory Crouch about his book, The Bonanza King, John Mackey and the Battle Over the Greatest Riches in the American West. Visit him online at gregcrouch.com, facebook.com slash Gregory Crouch author, at Gregory Crouch on Twitter, or Gregory.Crouch on Instagram. S.C. Gwynn, who we interviewed about his book, The Perfect Pass, American Genius and the Reinvention of Football, says of the Bonanza King, quote, In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier, wilder, more chaotic, boom-to-bust-and-back-again phenomenon than the Comstock load. Gregory Crouch has given us the definitive story of a man who clawed his way to the top of all that madness, and he has done it in a way that makes for irresistible reading. Greg, Sam Gwynn captures the insanity of gold fever in that review. Young John Mackey is born busted in Ireland. He lives with his mother, brother, and the family pig all under one roof. And so imagine, if people don't want to walk past the pig pen here in 2018, imagine living with one in your house. And they also would have roamed the streets of New York City that he grew up in, in the Five Points. They were the, they were the garbage service such as existed. Yeah. Then he's the newsboy. He's the very bottom of the rung of the ladder there. He's an apprentice where they don't want the Irish in this industry. Usually someone who starts out so hungry has an impossible time managing the boom times. In the animal science world, in my old veterinary work, we called that an air fern. We'd say <laughs> if a horse had starved and then suddenly had food, it would eat just anything. And then it would have trouble controlling its weight and it would get really fat. You see people who went through the depression, our grandparents maybe, or in my grandmother's case, the genocide by the Turks. They wanted to keep things. You know, if you left a bicycle overnight in my grandmother's house, it was hers. <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, yeah, you're going to ride it? Yes, I'm going to ride it. She'd say, Tease me back. We're all designed by how we grew up. We're all influenced. So how did did Mackey manage this feat where, although he keeps making money, although he says originally he'd be happy with just a little, he never becomes obsessed with it. He never feels like enough isn't enough. It doesn't, it honestly doesn't seem to mean that much to him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I think the success mattered to Mackey more than the money, right? He probably really enjoyed the responsibility of it. He knew he was a good miner and probably the best at running these mines of anybody he trusted his subordinates and he certainly had good managers working under him and stuff like that. But, you know, he stayed involved. He felt responsible for all the people that worked in his mines and stuff. And I don't think he was a naturally impulsive man. He did not fall prey to the dissipations common to the mining camp. He had, didn't have much attraction to the whorehouses, the saloons or the gambling hells, as they called them. And then those places proved the undoing of so many other men out there on the mining frontier. Um, Mackey's goal from the beginning was to become the manager and director of a large and successful mine, which he took all the way to the stratosphere. You know, he ended up in charge of the biggest and most successful mine on Earth. 
But once he made his first raise, you know, he was looking towards the future. Once he got steps up the ladder and he was making future investments that might have, you know, an even bigger payoff down the line. And, you know, that's its own form of gambling because mining is phenomenally risky, both physically and financially. But Mackie knew the Comstock load better than any other man. He'd been working on the load since a few weeks after its discovery, and he only made what he felt were good mining gambles. You know, some of them didn't pay off, but some of them did. And one of them contained the big bonanza. And that was the greatest mineral discovery ever made in the Old West. And that made Mackie one of the richest men in the world. You mentioned gambling. And throughout the Bonanza King, we read about John Mackie enjoying poker and employing some of those tactics to his businesses. For one thing, he definitely has the discipline, which is important to any successful gambler, any professional gambler. We all know the people who do have greed and do get gambling fever as much as some of these men around John Mackie got gold fever. It's, I guess, has the same root there in greed and the lure of easy money. So it was sad for me about, I don't know, probably about four-fifths of the way through the book that John Mackey has one of those moments of clarity, one of those moments reading in his inner monologue what he's thinking, and he laments that he loses his taste for poker. It's really another telling moment, another one of those oh-come-on moments. Yeah. And you're sad for him because he has such simple tastes, and here he's losing a simple pleasure, one of the one of the few recreation things he really has. So tell that story of the moment that, in the words of the old Kenny Rogers song, he just decides he's going to get up and walk away from the table after yeah. Washu Club. Well, Maggie was a quiet man. You know, he was a man of few words, but he was extremely competitive, and he liked to win, you know, make no mistake. And he did like to play poker which was, you know, standard entertainment in the mining camps. And he was at a game after he'd struck the big bonanza. He was at a seat at a table at the Washu Club playing poker, and he got dealt three aces. Uh, so, you know, he opened with a strong bet, and other men at the table raised him back, and the betting's going round and round like a cyclone. You know, Maggie re-raised and raised again, and he stayed with the heavy betting. And then he drew his fourth ace. So he has a lock. He's got a certain winner in this hand, but instead of like the thrill of impending victory, which, you know, poker had provided him throughout all these, you know, two decades in the mines, a chill goes through him and he, he thinks, what of it? You know, so what? It doesn't make even the slightest bit of difference if I win every dollar in sight, right? I'm so stinking rich, it just doesn't matter. And he showed down his hands, showed down his aces and walked away from the table without collecting his winnings and never played poker again. He also thinks of the other gamblers, which such a singular selfless act. Yeah. But the fact that he thinks, you know, to me, winning this pot means nothing. And yet it could destroy these guys I'm playing with. What's the point of that? That's not what the pleasure for him. He he never gets, despite the treatment he must have gotten his whole life, just, just from the things you mentioned. I mean, we know he didn't get treated great as an Irish kid off the boat. We know he didn't even get treated well in Ireland. And yet he never becomes one of those bitter people who I'm going to go crush somebody else, which some of these other robber barons you talked about or some of these robber barons, I won't lump John Mackey yeah. in with them. That, that's what they wanted to do. No, nobody was ever going to call them names again. Citizen Kane, we've all seen that, and we know he was going to remove the quotation marks from actress around his wife's name, speaking earlier about John Mackey not tolerating insults. Yeah. He wasn't just going around looking for people to crush. And you get that throughout the Bonanza King, that he's a guy who... He cares about other people. He cares about justice. He cares about what's going to come after him. But 
not in a way that, oh, I want everybody praising me. He cares about what's happening right now in the now. And that's one reason that he takes on despised industrialist Jay Gould in The Cable War. And I, I didn't want to close without mentioning that because here's a great fight. Here's a guy, you know, this is almost like something out of, out of a comic book where they have these two guys throwing down and, and fighting and one really wealthy guy and he's going he's gonna to fight another really wealthy guy and he's going to try to do what he thinks is right for little people. And so what will readers learn about that fight? And maybe they'll even see some parallels today as we have internet companies fighting over government control of things like net neutrality. And we see these great, huge fortunes. And it's almost required now for somebody to be a John Mackey, as we read in The Bonanza King, where we expect them to use at least some of their wealth for the common good. Yeah. You know, Mackey loved a good fight, right? He, but he wanted a fair fight. He didn't get any pleasure out of crushing some little guy or driving some little guy further down, right? On his way up, he had broken the monopoly that the Bank of California held on the Comstock mines. And that was a pretty pernicious monopoly that was extracting money from publicly traded mines and transferring it to their private pockets through a whole bunch of you know financial shenanigans that were not necessarily, although certainly immoral, not necessarily illegal in, a, in an era almost entirely devoid of corporate oversight. So when Mackey finishes extracting the big bonanza around 1880 and he takes that long vacation with his wife, by 1883, he was ready to get back in the fight. He decided to take on Jay Gould, who at that time was far and away the most feared capitalist in the world, right? He controlled newspapers, he controlled the telegraph, he was a railroad baron. Gould was seen as like the devil incarnate pulling the levers of the economy to enrich himself and drive everybody else down. And one of the things that Gould controlled was the transatlantic telegraph business. He had a cartel of all the cables that went across the floor of the Atlantic and he was extracting monopoly rents from that. Well, Mackey hated monopolies, right? They quashed competition and extracted all these profits to the detriment of the public. And that offended Mackey's sense of fair play, right? He, he believed in competition. He believed in the power of private enterprise. So he decided to use this great fortune to tackle Gould's transatlantic telegraph monopoly in cahoots with James Gordon Bennett Jr., who was the son of James Gordon Bennett, the New York Herald guy whose newspaper Mackey had sold when he was a kid, right? Yeah. Mackey put up most of the money. James Gordon Bennett Jr. put up some of the money, and then they invested this huge sum in building and laying two rival transatlantic cables. And Mackey was the front guy. He rebuffed Gould's efforts to get him to join into a cartel. And that sparked a vicious price war between the two men that lasted for most of the next five years. It expanded into domestic telegraph markets, and, and Mackey emerged victorious in the transatlantic telegraph monopoly. He beat it barely. But the clear winner in all of that was the public interest, right? The rates dropped more than 50% over the course of that fight. And Mackey had done this great public service doing it. And, and you know, the New York Times and all the other newspapers really lauded his efforts to do that. Uh, he made money at it, but the public did as well and got much better service. And, you know, is there a lesson in that for today's telecommunications? Well, I would say yes. <laughs> Monopolies are terrible for public interest. As obvious as it seems to us today after a century and a half back then, 
they thought that it was very efficient. You have that even today where people think with healthcare, whatever it happens to be, that, well, if we just have one body running it, for instance, in Canada, all the airlines, well, there's just Air Canada. So people think, oh, well, that'll, that'll be great and efficient. doesn't work out that way when you don't have a John Mackey running it. Now that I've read The Bonanza King, I'm going to pine for John yeah. Mackey because some of those monopolies are not run by people who are just naturally, if you have no competition, that was the thing. Maybe that's because he gives up the poker. I don't know where that falls in his in his life train, but it seems like that's that's something where he wants to have a little bit of excitement there, and he doesn't like a bully, and so he wants to go after them and, and do that and make it fair. Yeah, Dean, I think that's absolutely true. That high-stakes international business replaced poker as his entertainment, right? Um, and he was definitely bringing those same skills to the table, but but yes, absolutely, that replaced the low stakes of poker. General and President Ulysses S. Grant pays John Mackey what he considered to be the greatest compliment of his life. And I liked what you did in The Bonanza King, where you mentioned it a couple of times and give it to us right straight out. And then we really see in his life what that means to him. And we come to agree with General Grant. What was that compliment? And how do you evaluate it in light of the sweeping story you tell in The Bonanza King? Well, when his presidency ended, General Grant took an around-the-world tour. And at the end of that tour, Grant and his wife came to San Francisco from the Orient, and then they went up to Virginia City. And Mackey escorted the Grants on a visit to his Bonanza mines, and he showed them how he and his miners had extracted this immense ore body from more than 1,000 feet underground, which was this really difficult engineering challenge, one of the great engineering challenges of the time. And when they came back to the surface, Grant said that it was one of the most impressive things he'd seen anywhere in the world, and that, quote, Mackey might be proud to be master and director of the greatest mining enterprise on Earth. And Grant was obviously impressed with Mackey as an individual, because some years later, when Grant introduced Mackey to another man, he said, Mr. Mackey would make a great general had he been trained for the army. And that made a big impression. I mean, Grant was the greatest American soldier of the age and probably the greatest American general of all time. And as Mackey said, any man might be proud of that coming from Grant's mouth, which never slopped over. And neither did Mackey's, I might add. <laughs> yeah. And I like that he, even so, even at that, I mean, if that was me, I won't speak for you, but if it was me and General Grant paid me such a compliment and I owned a newspaper, <laughs> ne you know, never mind if I didn't, I'd be printing it on business cards. It'd be on there. And today on Twitter, you'd be putting it out. I'm sure it would be on all your dust jackets of your books <laughs> and rightly so. And yet John Mackey's just, oh yeah, hey, that was, that was a great compliment and he's humbled by it and he doesn't go shouting it from the rooftops and you say, wow, can you make me feel any less than you, John Mackey? And can you make me look at myself any, any more and say, hey, I could be a better guy. I could be more like John Mackey. Couldn't we all? Yeah. That's just such a great story. And Grant also coming from such a humble guy who knew pain and knew failure, failure, failure all of his life before his army career came along. That was another great cameo, just like the Mark Twain one, where you want to see those guys. I think those two men really had an affinity for each other, Grant and Mackey. And you know, I'm a West Point graduate, right? And and Grant's always been the grad that I've admired most. So I was quite thrilled when he started making cameo appearances in this story, <laughs> much to my surprise. So yes, yeah, I really appreciated that. And, and Grant probably stands under Lincoln as the seminal figure of 19th century America. 
It was so great to read that too. I mean, I love Grant. So that was just great to see him get in there. And another guy who doesn't get his due in American history. So they, they both uh, would have shared that because the, neither of them were real self promoters and out there trumpeting themselves. They, they cared more about getting things done and working hard. So that's another person that you'll find here in the Bonanza King. This vein has almost run dry, although there is a fortune in inspirational historic gold in the Bonanza King yet to be mined by readers. I do have one final question. You close the book by quoting all of these great things that people said at the end of John Mackey's life. One of them is, money hadn't made him a hypocrite and it had never stolen his good name. What do you hope readers will take from Mackey's inspiration and from his example, as I guess you can tell I took from his inspiration and example, as they manage their own fortunes, large and small? Well, Mackey, when he was asked by people, you know, what was the key to success in business or why had he been successful or what should they do to be successful? Mackey would always say, you know, son, always keep your good name. And I think what he's really saying there is be trustworthy and do what you say you're going to do. And that really was a key to Mackey's success. It made him very popular on the mining frontier out in the Comstock load and elsewhere in the West because he had never swindled anybody. He'd never taken advantage of anybody. And he had a lot of trust built up in his good name by the time that he took on Jay Gould in that cable war, right? And it was trust. The public trusted Mackey not to make a deal, make a side deal with Gould at their expense, right? So they would commit to Mackey's venture, even at certain times when his rates were higher than Gould's, they would stick with Mackey because they knew he wasn't going to surrender because he'd said he wasn't. And so that repository of trust was critical to Mackey's success because he had never lost his good name. Well, Gregory Crouch, author of The Bonanza King, I really envy the people that are listening. Sometimes I say that they'll get to read the book that I've already read because I wish I could go back to the beginning and read it again. And I probably will do that someday, which I don't often do. I will confess it's very few books that I'll go back and read again just because my memory, I usually remember everything I read. But I enjoyed The Bonanza King so much. Thank you for taking the time to personally introduce us to John Mackey, as you do in The Bonanza King. He lived a life and left a legacy that any of us would be proud to call our own. I wish you the best of luck with the book and with your efforts to restore this national hero, the man Goodwin's Weekly eulogized as the highest of all rich men in America. He never lost his good name, and I'm happy to play some small part in bringing that name back to the ears of his descendants in in the great American story. Oh, thank you so much, Dean. I'm really thrilled at how much you enjoyed the story. I can't ask anything more than that, you know, to share the love for this great old American story that we've come too close to forgetting. Again, the book is The Bonanza King, John Mackey and the Battle Over the Greatest Riches in the American West. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. 
for just those few extra taps of your finger. You can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Gregory Crouch for joining us and giving a forgotten industrial giant and philanthropist his due for breaking the mold of a Gilded Age robber baron. Visit him online at gregcrouch.com, facebook.com slash gregorycrouchauthor, at gregorycrouch on Twitter, or gregory.crouch on Instagram. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram at the History Author Show page, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. That's it for this gold-plated installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east sign, west sign, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.